Good morning. If you have your phone, go ahead and get it out. And let me tell you, if there was ever a week that you were going to use the QR code behind me, this is the week. I'm going to tell you some things. Don't want you to get nervous. Don't want to freak you out. We have 53 slides we're going to go through in about 22 minutes. Yeah. We're probably not going to go through all of them. We'll probably skip a bunch. But I want you to have them. We're going to be incorporating some very, very deep level thinking today. So I need you to put on your thinking caps. And for the next 20 or so minutes, we're going to ride pretty quick. Hopefully, we won't leave anyone behind. We'll keep trying to go. Also, please, um, I know this is a formal worship setting. And some people may feel weird about this. You can do it gently. I, I scan the audience. I make eye contact with some of you. By the way, as an aside, I make eye contact with you. Just a heads up. But if I'm going and you realize I'm going too fast or you are kind of lost, just kind of be like, and I'll kind of slow it down and break through some things. That's, that's important. I want to make sure that we're all going to get this together. Jonathan, could you please read for us Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 12. So let's put some context to this story, shall we? When we uh, first heard the story on the felt board many years ago, probably it looked something like this. You had a middle-aged Abraham with a nice beard walking with a young toddler boy up to Mount Moriah after God offered a test to this Abraham to kill his only son. Now, you may remember from last week that Isaac, this son of promise, was hundreds of years in the making. This was a promise that was given to Abraham, and he had to wait for, and wait for, and wait for, and finally God's. This was the son who was supposed to bring a new era to the world, a new kingdom of God. And yet, now he's to kill him. In actuality, the rabbinic tradition tells us that Isaac was probably a 30-something-year-old man. 
And Abraham was very old at this time. So I want you to picture that. What looks like a grandfather and son walking. Abraham bringing two of his closest servants with him up to Mount Moriah. I want you to envision what it would have been like. Abraham one morning waking up Isaac and saying, let's go. Where are we going to go? I'll tell you on the way. Halfway through, Abraham's saying, we have to go make a special sacrifice. Isaac's looking around, where's the sacrifice? And then somewhere along the line, I think it became clear. We know that it became clear right at the base of Mount Moriah when Isaac very symbolically grabbed the altar, the wood they would use. And this 30-year-old man, the son, began to carry it up a hill where a sacrifice that was going to change everything would happen. Now, the parallels are clear, and the impact of the story is clear. For right before Abraham offered the son of promise, this 30-year-old man who was dying upon wood on top of a hill, God stopped him. God said, no, that's not for you to do. Several thousand years later, there would be a son who would walk up a hill with the altar on his back, who would sacrifice everything and change the world. That's the sermon I've given so many times about this passage, and a sermon that many of you have heard several times. But today we're going to go in a different direction. A couple weeks ago we were studying in the teen class this story on Genesis 22 on the idea of testing. What it means to be tested by God. And about halfway through the class, as is usually the case, the teenagers asked a variety of questions that made us go deeper and deeper and deeper. And what was supposed to be a one-week write-off class while I was out of town, Casey expertly led for me, ended up becoming a three- to four-week study that was very intensive and exhausting. It just so happened that I looked at the calendar, and this was the sermon I was supposed to be preaching. I say, coincidence, probably more spirit-like. I want us to take a couple of moments this morning and unpack this, this story, what it reveals about the way God chooses to test us, some myths we may have, and by the end, maybe learn something new about the nature of God himself. That was the slow part. This is when we pick up. A couple things that jump out to me right off the bat is that Abraham knew how the test was going to end. He was going to be willing to sacrifice Isaac, but he was going to get his son back. He trusted God. God had said, this is the son of promise. This is the one I'm with. And even though everything around Abraham looked confused and, and ununderstandable, he knew one thing. God would keep his word, and he did. In fact, when he was going up the hill, Isaac's looking around for the sacrifice. It's dawning on him. It's probably him. So he grabs the altar and puts it on his back and begins to walk. Soon after, Abraham begins to walk beside him. But what does he say over his shoulder to the two servants? We're going to go up to this mountain. Something's going to happen. We're going to worship. And then we'll come back down. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. It was by faith that Abraham, when he was put to the test, offered up Isaac. Yes, Abraham, who had received the promise, was in the very act of offering up his only son, the one about whom it had been said, that in Isaac shall your family be named. He reckoned that God was capable of raising him even from the dead. And in one sense, he did indeed him indeed receive him back from there. Abraham knew that this test was to test his heart, to test his faith, but he also knew that, that is not, God would not do something malicious like kill his own son. That's not who God was. 
So Abraham passed the test that was before him by understanding and remembering the nature and the beauty of God. File that away. Abraham passed the test by willing, being willing to act in faith to a God that he trusted. So I got around this point in the Bible class with the teenagers. When Danielle, who's been worshiping with us now for a while, asked a really insightful question. She always asks really insightful questions. And I can say that because she's super shy. And if she was here today, man, I'd get an earful. She's not, so I can, I can brag about her. She said this, and I'm, I added a couple words, but you can get the gist. I don't understand this. If God already knows what's going to happen, then what's the point of the test? At best, it makes God look like a bored deity. She used the example of ants on an anthill, a human playing with ants on an anthill. And at worst, it makes him look malevolent, evil. Why does he do this? Why does he put us through these tests? What's the point? There's always moments like that when a 14-year-old asks a question that you realize, man, they get it. I didn't know how to answer right away. I had wrestled with this all through college. Studied it exhaustively. In fact, this is what I wrote my, like, cornerstone I had to graduate paper on. How in the world do you break four years of study into a ten-minute Bible class answer? So we didn't. We broke it down. But I would offer you this, this statement. She's right. She's dead right. If God really does know what's going to happen in, every, in this moment, then it does make God look like a bored deity. If he's just doing it to test Abraham for fun, then it does seem off. But Abraham didn't seem to think that. Neither do I. And neither do you. Because we, like Abraham, trust in the goodness of God. So what exactly is Abraham learning? What exactly is God trying to teach us in the story? And what in the world are we supposed to do with these tests? All of these questions swirl around, and if you give me a couple minutes, hopefully we'll answer them. Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, if you have a Bible that you're using physical copy, uh, go ahead and underline it. If you are using a phone, highlight it. I don't care. If you're just looking at the notes I sent you, just kind of keep your eyes on it, because this is going to answer a lot of our questions. Do not do anything for him, said God from the bush to Abraham. For now I know that you fear God, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. This one verse is going to challenge us in two major ways when it comes to our view of testing. This one verse is going to provide us an answer and a context for us to understand and identify when God is testing us. And it's also going to show us that maybe some of the beliefs we've had about testing is wrong. Let's start here. This is a myth I had about testing. Maybe it's a myth you have about testing that Genesis chapter 22 shows me wrong on. First, God is testing me through my difficult times. I have heard this said so much, especially this last year. I've heard this said from people who are struggling with d diseases and illnesses. I've heard people say this when they lose a job or when their life is difficult, that this is a test from God. God is testing me in this moment. And, well, that's not exactly what the Bible says. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, his steady light doesn't vary, it doesn't change or produce shadow. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, not the bad ones. It doesn't say every good and perfect gift and every single curse comes from God above. No, in fact, he even dispels that by saying, and there's not even shadow in his light. 
Then he takes it a step further. John does in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. If you're going through a time of suffering, if you're hurting, if you're, you're wondering what God is trying to discover inside of you, what test he's providing for you, I want to start here. That's not a test. Tests, first of all, don't happen very often, but they never look like that. I've heard so many times people saying, COVID-19 is a test. My illness, a test. My cancer, a test. The loss of my loved one, a test. Well, that's not how God tests. In fact, every instance we get of testing in the Old Testament, of which there's nine, are all in sustenance, not in suffering. Let's use an example. There's more examples we'll come to on accident as we kind of wander through this lesson. But in uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, the people say, I'm hungry. They're in the wilderness. We're going to die. And God says, okay, I'm going to rain bread from heaven to you so that I may test them. So that I may test them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 Chronicles 32, we're going to get to some of these other examples of this being repeated. God does not test in suffering. God tests in sustenance. He didn't test by starving the people. He tested them by giving them more food than they knew what to do with and seeing if they still trusted him. The test of Isaac, for instance, wasn't the death of Isaac. It was the giving of Isaac. He got the son of promise. There's the test. Do you still trust me? In our life, we, we misappropriate, I think, so many times what God's trying to do. And we also, if we're not careful, have a little bit of a self-centered streak. At least I know I'm guilty of this. One time I got really feeling down on myself about a year ago, and I'm like, God's testing me with COVID-19. And my, my beautiful wife was kind of like, is, she, is he though? I mean, God created a global pandemic to kill hundreds of thousands of people and shut down the whole world to test you. That puts you in your place right there. But we often come to things like that, don't we? It's about what we are experiencing, and we don't have a big perspective. So God tests us not by suffering, but by sustaining. That's the first thing that Genesis chapter 22 kind of teaches us about, about testing. Genesis chapter two, 22 also teaches us this, that it dispels the myth that God does tests for a reason that's unknown, the mysterious reasons. You know, what's fascinating is this is the one I definitely held to more than the other one. That I'm never going to know why God does what God does sometimes. And there are sometimes that's true. But with testing, that's not a mystery. In fact, let's look at these examples throughout the Old Testament. He tells either the person he's testing or everyone around him that he's testing them by saying specifically, I'm testing for this reason. So that I can know. I'm testing so I can discern. I'm testing to know. I'm testing to find out. I'm testing to discover. Do you notice this? He's not saying, I'm testing and wah ha 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 ha. Good luck figuring it out. And he like disappears into the shadows. No. In fact, with Isaiah, uh, with Hezekiah, he specifically tells Isaiah, as Isaiah's standing outside the room of Hezekiah, he just got done talking. He goes, Hey, by the way, Isaiah, just want to let you in on this. I'm about to test him. He is rich beyond measure. And I'm just going to see what he does with it. I'm going to see what he does with it. He's not hiding the mystery of testing. He's doing it for a very specific reason. It's to discover our heart. Where does our heart lie? So the two things that Genesis 22 helps us understand is that first, God's testing for a specific reason. He wants to know Abraham's heart. But also, it's an, the second reason is he's not doing it to hurt him. He's doing it in blessing. 
So God is testing to discover something. God is testing to discover something. I was super proud of this lesson, guys. Like, I was, th- I was like, this is it, mic drop, I did it. And then one of those little punks in the teen class raises his hand and goes, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, God dis- works to discover our heart. But doesn't God already know it? That's a good question. So then week three came along. There is a seeming contradiction to this. God knows all things that are possible to know, and yet in these moments, God tested to discover something about how someone would respond. What do we do with that? How do we answer that? Thus begins a six-year rabbit hole, leading in a four-week Bible class. Genesis chapter 22 is what we're going to use as the base to answer this question and fix this contradiction. To help us understand why God needs to test and what exactly it means to discover our heart. We're going to do it in three ways. We're going to talk about possibility. We're going to talk about God's plan. And we're going to talk about our power. And at the end of this, hopefully, we can begin to understand a couple of key things about our own life, our own prayer. The way God interacts with us. And it kind of unlocks God's beauty. Because as an aside... If we no longer think that God's the one constantly putting us in suffering, then how much more beautiful does God become? We'll get there. So let's start here with this idea of possibilities. If God knows all things that are possible to be known, which is something we agree with, and God needed to discover something about how someone will respond to something, there's this inescapable reality, and we have to rectify it. It seems that God knows everything that can be known but doesn't know this. Which leads me to ask the question, why? The answer is pretty clear in the text. It's not possible to know what someone's going to do with free will until they do it, right? This makes sense. We oftentimes talk about God as if he's this narrator or this author of a book that we're living in, that we're characters in, right? And that we're just doing the things that the author said we were going to do. And so we do this, we do that, we do the other. And look, it's just what the author said. But then there's these weird passages where God says things like, choose me. Choose life. He's asking people to repent. Which clearly indicates that, at least to some degree, he hasn't written our story for us. In fact, it seems to some degree that we write our own story. But then also there's this other part that... If God knew exactly what we were going to do before we do it, he's ahead of us. Is there really any way we could do something different? No. If God looked down the road and said, well, Bishop's going to do this, and then he's 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 going to do this, and he's going to end here. He's here. And me, all the way back over here, when I start making my first choice, it's not really free. I'm going there. We get this issue of free will. But what free will does is it helps us change not the nature of God, but the nature of the future. We'll talk about this in just a moment. But this means that our future, the future, isn't set in stone. It exists in possibilities, which radically changes the way we pray and live life, and we'll talk about that. But I want us to just sit and realize that our future isn't set in stone. It exists in possibilities. We often live a determined and fatal life, don't we? Well, I'm, I'm destined for, 
Well, this seems to be what fate has in store. And God rejects all of that because he gave us the power to choose. And every time we succumb back into it, we're negating the power God gave us. Consider the ways God teaches us this in the Bible. And this is, by the way, the like 37 verses in five minutes. So, stretch. If you have your phone, keep your eyes glued to it because we're going to be flying. <clears throat> Let me get a drink. Okay. God changed his mind. There are so many instances in the Bible where God changes his mind. And by the way, I'm inclined to believe God. That's, I'm going to start there. God says something, I try to understand it, even if it makes my brain hurt. And this is one of those things that makes my brain hurt. In Amos chapter 7, verses 3 on, but in specifically verse 3 and 6, Amos the prophet is talking with God, and God says, we have got to punish Israel. They've gone too far. And so God goes, here's what I'm going to do. There's going to be a fire from heaven, wildfire, through Judea. That's the punishment. And Amos prays, please, Lord, no, not that. And then it has this really powerful line, God repented, which we now translate, God changed his mind. That won't happen. How about this, the Lord says. Instead of the fire, I understand that's a little devastating, we're going to send locusts, lots of locusts. No food anywhere in the kingdom, that'll be the punishment. And Amos again says, Lord, not that. That's too much, we'll die. And so God takes a step back and says, okay, I changed my mind. And then they come to this third conclusion, this third conclusion of the exiles. And God gives the prophecy on the exiles. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, he's standing on top of a mountain. Literally, the glory cloud of God is on top of Mount Sinai. Where are the Israelites? Well, underneath the shade of God's glory, they're building an idol to a calf. That's Israel for you. And they're worshiping it. God is telling the Ten Commandments to Moses, looks over his shoulder and sees the idol. And understandably goes, I can't work with these people. Forget it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to decline my relationship with them. We're going to destroy them. We're going to start a new nation through you, Moses. And we're just going to move on with it. Moses prays, please, Lord, remember Abraham and Isaac. Don't do this thing. And says the Lord changed his mind. Second Chronicles chapter 21, verse 15. David does something he's not supposed to do. He counts his soldiers. Trust in God, not your armies. That was the command. And he did anyway. God comes down to David and says, David, you did done messed up. David goes, yes, sir, I did. And he goes, there are three consequences that you can choose from. It's like a pick-your-own-adventure story. That was a bad analogy. But it's kind of like that. And so God gives him three options. David chooses you, God. I want you to punish me because I trust you more than I trust this other stuff. And so the angel of the Lord is descending, it says, in, in a very poetic way, that the arm of the, the sword-bearing arm was coming down on Jerusalem. When the Lord looked out and changed his mind. We're not going to do that. 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 5. Sennacherib and his giant army is coming towards Israel. And lo and behold the one savior of Israel Hezekiah is dying of a disease. It's not going to be long before he passes away. The entire hope of Israel lies on his strategic ability. On his leadership. But he's going to die. Not only is he going to die. He's given a time sentence of how long until he dies. Then he prays, and before Isaiah can even leave the courthouse, God comes back and changes his mind. We see this a lot in if and perhaps. Again, the future existing impossibilities. The Lord changes his mind, making prophecies and then changing them halfway through. This is something that we see consistently, but we also see these. And by the way, this is the most like, interesting to me in all of Scripture, the perhaps statements. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 3, perhaps 
God says. Maybe they will pay attention and each of them stop living the evil way they do. Perhaps there's a hope that these people will change. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God talking about prophecies in general says this. He goes, if I make a prophecy against the nation, and that nation is bad and they're going to get punished, but then they become good, I'll change the prophecy. He did that in Jonah. But if a nation's good, Israel, calling you out, and then you're not good anymore, well then guess what? All the blessings I'm going to pull back. What does that reveal? There's a variety of options that lie before these countries, these nations. Depends on what they do. In Ezekiel chapter 33, he's talking more about an individual saying the exact same thing. If he returns what he gives and all of that, then he will certainly live and not die, despite that was the prophecy against him. The future exists in these possibilities of what can and cannot happen, what may or may not happen, perhaps. These are the most heartbreaking for me, I think. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6, God's looking out at the world that he created, the world that just five chapters earlier he said was very good. Very, very good. And now all of a sudden violence is everywhere, destruction is inevitable, and God realizes that what humans had become had been so far away from what he hoped they would. And it says that God, God regretted. God regretted making humanity. Regret is one of those interesting things that can't exist if certainties are a thing. God can't simultaneously know the betrayal of Israel and regret it. Likewise, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, he says this, I regret that I have made Saul king. God chose Saul. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier, he said that kings are going to call some bad things down the line. That ended up happening. But he also specifically praised Saul. So, like, four chapters go by from when he chose Saul and praised him to when he said, I regret him. Because the actions Saul did were evil in the sight of God. Again, Saul's path wasn't set before him. He chose what to do. And it led to his downfall. We're almost done, so if you're getting tired of this, just hang on. I promise we'll wrap it up in just a moment. But hey, on the bright side, what other sermon can you ever say that you went through like 36 passages of the Bible in one sitting? Man, maybe never again. Maybe never again. Um, okay. Expected or surprised? In Isaiah chapter 5, God is singing a song. He's singing a song about Israel. The Lord has spoken. And he's speaking about Israel. And what he says to in this song is this. I was like a vineyard uh, owner. And I went through and I tried my best to, to clean this land that was rocky and disgusting and gross. I cleaned it all up. I did everything I could. I put hedges all around it. I laid the seed. I tilled the ground. I did everything that a vineyard owner does. And I, I, I carefully chose the tree. I chose the trees and put them in the right spot. I watered them. I did everything I could. And when it came time for the harvest, I expected good grapes. But I got sour ones instead. Then it says, now I will inform you what I'm about to do. The change of plans. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse uh, 6 through 7 and then 19 through 20, we're just going to read 19 to 20. God is, this is a personal moment of God. Uh, this isn't one of his public, there's, there's four different types of prophecies in Jeremiah, I'm not going to get into that. But one of them is personal relational prophecies that he's giving specifically to Jeremiah, his friend. This is one of those specific Jeremiah-only prophecies. God says this, and it's really heartbreaking. I thought to myself, oh, what a joy it would be for me to treat you like a son. Talking about Israel. 
What a joy it would be for me to give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful piece of property in the world. I expected you would call me father and would never cease being loyal to me. But you haven't. You've been unfaithful to me, nation of Israel. Heartbreaking story from a God who was legitimately hurt by the actions of people. Last section, we're almost done. Okay, here we go. May or may not. Jeremiah comes to the king Zedekiah. Zedekiah is sitting in his throne, and he has not done what is good in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, he gives this whole prophecy at the beginning of Jeremiah 38 of what's going to happen to Israel. Newsflash, not going to be good. And then he says this line. He's talking about repentance. If you do, if you repent, your life will be spared, and the city will not be burned down. Indeed, you and your whole family will be spared. But if you do not surrender, then the city will be handed over to the Babylonians and burned down. God's putting two options in front of them. Option A, he lives. Option B, he dies. That choice is all up to him. Exodus chapter 4, our final story. Exodus, this is one of my favorite stories because... Moses is so relatable in this whole narrative. God's choosing him to be the deliverer of Israel, the chosen people from Egypt out of slavery. And uh, he's not a fan. He's not going quietly into that night. He is fighting God on every account, trying every way he can. And he says, God, what if people don't believe me? I mean, I'm not a great talker anyway. So how am I supposed to convince people that I am the savior of them by God? And he goes, here's how we're going to do it. It's pretty amazing. Grab your stick. Okay, cool. Throw it to the ground. Boom. Snake. Grab it by the tail. Stick. That'll work. And then he goes, but mm, if that doesn't work, I think it'll work, but if that doesn't work, here's another trick to use. Open up your cloak, put your hand in. Pull your hand out, it's like the hokey pokey, except when you pull it out, you have leprosy. Again, bad analogies. You pull, you, you pull it in, leprosy, put it back in, pull it back out, healed. That's the second sign, that'll work. And then he goes, but just to be safe, just to be safe, here's a third. You go, I think these will work. Here's the third, if it doesn't. Take a glass of water from the Nile, pour it on the ground. When it hits the ground, it'll turn to blood. But then he goes on to talk about how, and there will be many more signs if necessary. What is he saying? If they do not believe, versus if they do believe. When they believe. How they believe. The future is not set. It exists in possibilities. Believe it or not, I actually cut seven stories from this list. I figured that that was already too long, and here we go. So the future does not, the future exists in possibilities. God consistently is trying to show us the power and meaning that you and I have over these possibilities, the choices that we make that change and shape the future forever. And this leads us to the question of God's plan. What does it mean that God has a plan? We believe and take comfort in this. We say it all the time, God's plan for me, God's plan for me, God's plan for you. God's plan for you has been the same since before you were born and will be the same forever, and that is to have you be saved. That is his plan for your life. That is his primary and chief objective. But oftentimes we believe that God's plan goes from everything, from what I'm going to have to breakfast that day to, to what car I'm going to choose at the dealership. Those are choices that are us. God's plan is about the ultimate end game of humanity. It's about your soul and salvation. And that means that you and I, you and I are responsible for filling in the gaps. Sure, we can serve a God who plans out exhaustively everything that's going to happen, but if that is what has happened in the past, look at all the evil that's occurred. Look at the plan that's been before us. Was this really all part of God's plan? 
the Holocaust, Black Death, that was all part of God's divine plan from the beginning? No. That was the result of other things. I think the reason we struggle with this is because we think that God having this divine plan is kind of like him having control. And as humans, we believe control is the ability to determine everything around us, right? That's when we feel in control. We feel in control when nothing can happen outside of us saying yes or no. That's when we feel in control. And so, being humans, we do what we always do, and we say, okay, if that's how I, Bishop Darby, feel in control, guess what? That's how God must feel in control. But God is sitting up there going, nope, that's not control to me. Because like he has always done, he redefines what control looks like. He's done this with glory, right? Glory is a king sitting on a throne with majestic riches all around. God goes, no, 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 none of that. Glory is a carpenter's son dying naked on a cross. He says power is in the ability to kill, and Jesus goes, no, no, power is in the ability to die well. And constantly God is redefining these things. It should be no different when he comes to this and control. What God defines as control isn't his ability to make sure that we always choose the right thing, but his ability to do whatever it takes when we make our choice. We feel like we have to make God ourselves. But his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So we have to be careful doing that. And in actuality, the beauty of God, the power of God, is seen more in this view of God, of God over the, the possibilities rather than God over the certainties. And here's why. Let me, let me say you walk into a room, there's three chess masters. Three chess masters and there's this epic chess tournament. Chess master number one, undefeated. Very powerful chess master. The way this chess master is undefeated is he created a program on his computer, and he created the bots he plays. So he knows exactly what the bots are going to do, because guess what? He made them. He'll always win. But there's no challenge. That's a powerful technician, not a particularly good chess player. Then you have this uh, second idea. We're going to call him... The crystal ball, I forgot what I called him. The crystal ball, right? So the chess master's sitting there, and in his lap is a crystal ball, and you walk up, and you try to play him. And he goes, hold on, before we start, rubs the crystal ball and sees the game. And he can beat you. Is that an impressive? Yes, that's a very impressive prophet. But not a very impressive chess player. But then you have this third chess master. This chess master who looks up and says, let's go. And he lets you make the first move. And he looks at you and goes, that was a phenomenal move. In 36 turns or less, I'll beat you. And he makes his counter. And then, you know, he moves his rook and he goes, ha-ha, that was, that was clever. Okay, now I'm going to beat you in 17 turns or less. Because this chess master is so infinitely intelligent that he knows every possibility of everything that anyone can ever do and he's always ready for them. He's anticipated every move that every person will ever make and he is ready for it. That chess master is a chess master not only who's infinitely compassionate, infinitely powerful, but a God who overknows everything and is ready for everything. It's why God can definitively promise us in Romans 8.28, I will make everything good. He didn't say everything will be good. He didn't say I'm going to do, I, I'm always going to make sure that everything happens is good. No, what he says is whatever happens in your life, I am the ultimate chess master who knows exactly how to respond in that circumstance. You have cancer, God's ready. You lose loved ones, God's ready. You're struggling with depression, God's ready. Whatever comes your way in life, whatever Satan throws at you, whatever decisions you make, God is ready on the other side to make sure you can find good. We serve an overknowing, incredibly compassionate, and eternally uh, prepared God. And how beautiful is that? And finally, and this is our shortest point, power. 
So if the future exists in possibilities and you and I are responsible for bringing them into existence, let me ask you this. How much power and responsibility does that mean do you have? If the future isn't set and it's dependent on you right now, what kind of power does that give you? Here's a really unfun question that I asked myself, and I didn't put it on the slide because I wasn't brave enough, but here I am, and I guess I am. If the future was up to me, would it be better or worse than today? The answer is worse. More times than not. But if the future isn't set, and each one of us, each prayer we make, each thought we have, each action we determine, each one of us gets to define it, then what are we going to do to make tomorrow better? Because here's the reality. We can't sit and point fingers at a broken world and say how awful and terrible it is, when in actuality it is ours to change. We can't look at a fatalistic world and say, look at how terrible things have gotten, evil things have gotten. What are we going to do? Change it. Because the future is in our hands. Every choice, every decision, every day. This is why God was so desperately calling to us, right? When he says things like, I've laid before you life and death, choose life. When Jesus crying in Jerusalem cries over the Pharisees, and he says, I wish that things could have been different, but they weren't. And we see in Hosea chapter 7, verse 13, God crying over Israel, pleading with them to repent, pleading for them to change. Why? Because he literally and legitimately believes that he can. That leaves us today. Every thought you make, every choice you have, changes the future forever, better or worse. There is no little decisions. The future is in your hands. It's time for you to change it. How are you going to? Think about the way that moments are different. Moments at the water cooler when I'm talking with my coworker, which in my case is my dad. But for you guys, it's different. When you're sitting there and you're talking to your coworker, do you ever stop and realize the gravity of the situation you find yourself in? That you are standing before a plethora of opportunities of what the future could be, and in that moment, you're choosing which path will come to life. Have you ever stopped and considered the way that the future has been changed positively by your actions, or maybe negatively by your actions? What if there was a future where someone you wanted to tell the gospel to and just never did? What if there was a universe that that person did get converted because of the words you said? And that person converted hundreds of people over the course of his life by his kids and his wife and his family and all of that shenanigans. All of those people, all of those futures could have come into existence, but we didn't because of a choice we made. And likewise, how many small choices have we made that we don't even realize had monumental consequences for the better? And all these stories have one thing in common, don't they? The prayers of people. When we pray to God, we're not praying to a God who already knows exactly what's going to happen. So he sits there and goes, okay. Yeah, that's a nice prayer. Thank you. No, it's a God who's constantly changing things by the words of his spirit in us. So what are we going to do with our power? What are we going to do in our life? It, Genesis chapter 22 reveals to me a man who was willing to change everything, risk everything, do everything for God because he believed in God. And in so doing, he changed literally everything about the future of the world. And he leaves a shining example for us. An example that says to us, we have the ability right now to change everything about everything. What are we going to do? And guys, as a church of a hundred and whatever people we have today, I don't know, I'm not good at math. Whatever we, whatever we are, what are we doing? Because every word, every prayer changes everything. If one man can save Israel in his prayer, if one man can, can change the mind of God with his prayer, if one man can save a soul with his actions, what can a hundred of us do with ours? Where are we? And what are we going to do with this beautiful power God's given us? I want you to consider it. 
because I don't know what the answer is for you, but I know what the answer is for me. And the answer is I've got to get fighting better and more intensely every day. In the back, in just a moment, there'll be people that are ready to talk to you if you'd like to, to pray with you. We hope you'll consider it. Let's stand, let's sing together.